Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Arbor Vitae podcast. I'm Adam Taylor, one of your co-hosts. I'm here with my fellow co-host, Jonathan Conrad, and our featured craftsman from Episode 9, Craig Thibodeau. So welcome, Craig. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be here, guys. Um, as we've mentioned pretty much every time we bring Craig up on the show, uh, if you have not already... Um, taken a look at his work you really really need to do that because uh it's very impressive and it runs the gamut i mean craig you you have your fingers in all kinds of different woodworking techniques and styles um as evidenced by just even a cursory scroll down your instagram feed um so could you uh tell us a little bit about your background and maybe either how you got into woodworking or um you know uh about the work that you like to do or your business, things like that? Sure. Um, I got into woodworking as a hobby initially. It was something I was doing when I was going to college and then also while I was working after college. And it just grew from a hobby into a business over time. It took years to get to that point, but it kind of grew on its own. And then when we had kids, I ended up switching over and doing it full time so I could be at home more often and be around the house more often. Um, but in terms of the, the the variety of things I do, I, I like to do different pieces all the time. I'm not a big fan of repetition. So for me, new technical challenges are what makes it interesting. So it, it's always a new piece, really, or it's a new inlay or a new marquetry or new veneering technique or something different. And that's what I really like about woodworking is doing something different every time. So for me, that's that's where the challenge is. And that's kind of why I keep doing it is to continue pushing my particular skill set further and making more and more complex pieces. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have any um, formal education once you got more serious about it or uh, was it just all self-taught? Primarily self-taught. I took two classes, both marketry classes, one with Paul Schirsch in Santa Barbara and one with Patrick Edwards here in San Diego. Um, two totally different styles of marketry and yeah. two completely different ways of working. Uh, my my methods follow more the Paul Schirsch commercial veneer, modern glues, um, and professional finishing. Not no high glue, no sawn veneers really, typically, and very little uh, French polishing. So for me, those are the only classes I've really taken, um, and it's really only been focused on marquetry. Everything else is self-taught and just lots and lots of practice. Wow, that's incredible. I. It must take a lot of practice. I mean, if, if that's the only <laughs> formal instruction you've had, either you're a savant or you've practiced your butt off. Um. No, it's practice. And, I, and I'm a big, it's definitely practice. And I'm a big believer in the fact that anybody can do this kind of thing or really anything else if you just put in the effort and the time. And you, if you want to do it bad enough, you'll get there eventually. It may take one person, you know, a couple of years, it may take somebody else 10 years, but the end result, you'll still get there if you put in the time and the effort. And I don't, I don't think there's, in terms of, you know, skill or talent, I don't think it's necessarily a talent thing. It's just lots and lots of work which, and lots of practice doing the same stuff. What's your strategy for practicing? I mean, some people practice by applying it to projects where, you know, they don't necessarily just do a practice project, but they practice through projects and others, yeah, just do that where they'll take a project, it would be for the purposes solely of practicing or they won't even actually produce anything other than just practicing. I've never done that. My practice is always with paying client work. Okay. Um, okay. Once I started doing this professionally, I really tried not to do any 
beyond a couple speculation pieces, maybe one or two per year, I, I really don't do much in the way of sitting in the shop and practicing. It's always related to client work because it's got to be paying work essentially. Mm -hmm. So if there's a new technique, you know, like the metal inlay, it's something that a new client, an old client of mine, I should say, really wanted to do something <clears throat> pardon me with metal inlay so we kind of learned on the job and that that's where all the practice comes for me is learning on the job with paying work i don't want to do it as uh you know sitting in the shop and cutting dovetails all day long it doesn't pay there's not really much point to it in my mind i really want to focus the skills on something that's going to be a finished product for somebody in the end if that makes sense it makes a lot of sense yeah um, I, I want to say it's Shannon Rogers who typically recommends if you're going to, if you if you want to learn how to hand cut dovetails, build a chest of drawers, you know. And yeah, I I, I have to agree. I mean, there is certainly a value, especially when you're first getting started with things. I mean, once you get to a certain point, you can be relatively certain that if you have all the basic skills down, then learning something new, you know, you're not going to mess up so badly that you can't recover most of the time. But, um, you know, when you're first getting started, it's probably helpful to do actual practice things that aren't tied to a project, but you get so much more out of it when you have a finished result at the end of it. And, And it's, I feel like there's a lot of motivation there because you're working toward a goal rather than just this abstract getting better at, you know, X, Y, or Z. Yeah, I would agree. I, you certainly can practice, and there's nothing wrong with practicing if you want to practice cutting dovetails or cutting straight lines and things like that. There's certainly nothing wrong with it, and it will increase your skill set. But if you can apply it to a finished project that you then either bring into your house or you sell to a client, one of the two will allow you to do more of the same thing, especially if you sell it to a client. Then you now have income to right. purchase better tools, spend more time in the shop, it allows you to continue the practice onto another project where if you're just cutting dovetails in the shop, you can make a bunch of drawers for a shop cabinet, that kind of stuff. But at a certain point you're going to run out of space to put drawers. So so putting them into a project that you can sell to a client allows you to then buy more tools and more materials and, you know, bigger shop and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it's, I mean, it's practical advice because we don't have unlimited time or materials. And so the best way to put that time and those materials to good use is to practice in. And I think at least from my experience, when I'm doing it that way and I'm not overextending how far that skill is away from where I'm at now, it forces me to be a little bit more careful, recognizing that like, I can't just, Oh, I'll screw this one up and I'll do the next one better because it's an actual project that has to get complete. And so at least for me, it forces me to be a little bit more yeah, disciplined and diligent in doing the work because I'm not planning on throwing it into the fire pit when I'm done. Right. Well, and, and it doesn't have to necessarily be a project you build to sell to a client. It can be a project for your house, if you know, mm-hmm. dressers for the kids or the bed project for the kids, that kind of stuff. Those all serve a purpose. And it's better than you being in the shop just cutting a two by four into smaller pieces. You know, you've built, you build a project for the house that you need. Maybe it saves you money over buying a piece like that. And then in mm-hmm. a few years, when your skills are better, you can replace that piece with a, a better version of it if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gives you a place to do something practical where the materials aren't just getting thrown away. They're going to a useful purpose in your house or in a client's house. Yeah. 
and you get time practicing the skills that you want to get better at during that. And that's where you can add, you know, if you want to add things like inlay or marquetry, that's the place to add them because you can do a little bit of it as part of each project and get better each time you do it, as opposed to waiting for a client to come in and say, I really want a marketry sideboard, even though you've never done marketry before, I really want you to build one for me. <laughs> if you do a little bit over a long period of time on a variety of projects, now you've got, for a business person at least, a portfolio of work that you've done showing bits of marketry here and there, you're no longer somebody that's never done marketry or inlay or you know, whatever the thing is, carving. Um, if you if you start to practice it, you can put it into pieces and start to show a progression of skills over time. Well, as opposed to waiting for a client or a job for your house where somebody wants a marketry sideboard, because mm -hmm. I'm definitely a, a big proponent of building the piece before the client will buy it from you. And most of my early spec pieces were complicated art deco pieces to show the fact that I have the skills to build these pieces so that a client would see it and go, that guy has the skills to build the thing that I want mm -hmm. versus me just telling them I have the skills. But Trust me, I actually, got this. <laughs> yeah, I, I can build an art deco thing like that. That's no problem. I've never done it before, but I can do it. <laughs> it can't be that hard, right? I know once, all once the steps. Got, <laughs> yeah, once you have a couple of those pieces in your portfolio, Again, from a business standpoint, it, it shows clients or potential clients that you can actually do the work. And they don't know whether you built that for your house or you built that for your brother or your sister or for a paying client. The fact is that you've built something of a certain style that the client sees and go, I want one of those. That's exactly mm -hmm. what I want. So when you started out early on, I mean, at, from the from an actual running a business standpoint, were there projects that you either turned away or or maybe refactor design to accommodate for you know where your skills were at that time no at the beginning i didn't turn any projects away uh, whether it was probably smart in a closet or anything else every, every bit of work that came in was necessary in the beginning yep for probably the first maybe five years every bit okay. of work was necessary okay and, and it was all low budget work that was even the complex pieces the the budget was always lower than it should have been for a piece like that um, but that eventually grew over time, and then I was able to start phasing out the work that I really didn't want to do. Kitchen cabinets, bathrooms, things like that. I'll occasionally do one of those now, but really only for clients that I've known for a long time that want something different. But it it's not something that at the beginning you can say, oh, I'm not going to do any of that work, because you may just be sitting in your shop by yourself a lot, not doing anything. <laughs> right. I'm holding out for something better. Or cutting. I'm not going to build that Cutting two by fours into smaller pieces. You know? Yeah, which there's nothing wrong with that. If you have a selection of two by fours that you want to make smaller. But yeah, I mean, anybody starting out that's going from a paying job to building whatever furniture, let's say for full time. At the beginning, you have to take everything that comes in because one, it builds your skills because you're building anything that comes in. So one day it's a dining table, the next day it's a cabinet, the next day it's a chair. You're building a whole variety of things, which really pushes your skill set far beyond what you probably would have done if you didn't take those jobs. Because mm -hmm. maybe you would have been just cutting two by fours into little pieces and you never would have built a chair and you never would have built a bathroom vanity and you may not have built a table. But now you've built all of those things. So it, it really pushes your skill set beyond where it would have been if you hadn't taken on that work. And that, that's right. part of the reason I did it at the beginning. But it's also necessary financially because most people that start building furniture don't do it with a whole list of clients 
and a lot of deposits. They do it because they want to do it, and they just kind of hope they're going to find the work along the way. But most people don't start out with, you know, I, I've got an order for 10 dining tables, so I need to start doing this full time. <laughs> that, that would be very rare, yeah. I would think. Charles Brock comes to mind with his, I think he, he started out with five or six rocking chairs all at once. But, uh, yep. but you know, yeah, that that is definitely the exception that proves the rule. Um, yeah, there's probably not many of those out there. <laughs> most of them are people working in a garage. Yeah, and to yeah. your point, it's like, no one's going to order six dining tables for me because I've never built one before. Why would they come to me if, you know, unless they know me personally and, but I mean, the the bottom line is you're absolutely right that, and it makes sense is that, you know, you're going to draw clients based on the work that you've already demonstrated you're capable of doing. Yeah. And that's partly why now I don't do cabinetry i don't do shaker i don't typically do arts and crafts beyond an occasional piece um, i do a lot of veneering a lot of complex veneering marquetry parquetry things like that a lot of decorative inlay because those are things that i want to do and they're things that allow me to charge more for the pieces mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i've demonstrated over a long period of time that i can do pretty much anything the client wants so there's there's no limitation anymore in terms of the technical skills it's more a matter of whether the client has a clear enough vision of what they want to be able to describe it in a way that you can design it. Or a client comes in and I want some inlay and I want some marketry, but I really have no idea what I want. And you're starting from scratch with no information. Once you've built a variety of those pieces, you've got at least enough that you can show people pictures of a whole bunch of things and they can select through them and say, oh, I like these flowers or oh, I like this shape. Can we do something like that? Okay. Where if you haven't built a whole variety of pieces over time, you don't have that background of knowledge and a portfolio of work that you can show. You can certainly show other people's work. You can flip through books and show pictures of stuff. And probably everybody starts out that way. I started out that way. Um, that's why I have so many of the fine woodworking design books because they're perfect for showing clients what's possible. Even if you haven't built it, you could still show them, well, look, somebody else has built this. So if they can build it, then I can probably build it too eventually sure yeah well and speaking of other people's work um in in episode nine um we talked about uh well episodes nine and ten are going to be a series on uh role models in of various sorts in in woodworking and um you know episode nine is going to focus on patron saints episode 10 is uh mentors but um as someone who's largely self-taught uh did you have any um, any role models that you looked up to, or, or did you ever have the opportunity to be mentored by either of the guys that you took a class with or, or anyone else that you knew? Yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Paul Schirsch and I developed a, a very good friendship, and that turned into a form of mentoring, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I did a variety of work for him over the years, as a subcontractor doing inlay and things of that sort, some veneering. And that came from that mentoring relationship. He was the one that actually started me on doing a lot of the mother of pearl work that I do. It was for a subcontracting job I did for him. And then we did a whole variety of veneer work as well, but he's, he's probably the closest thing I have to a mentor in terms of woodworking in, in terms of people that have inspired me. 
the obvious one was James Cranoff. I had all of his books and that was what really pushed me to increase the precision of my work and the, the detail level of my work was just reading his books and seeing the, the really fine detail in all of his cabinetry. Um, George Nakashima, because I initially started off building slab tables. That was a lot of my first work was, which I don't do anymore and I don't really showcase at all, mm-hmm. was live edge tables, coffee tables, anything I could do with a, a slab because slabs used to be easier to get in San Diego. They're a little harder to get now, Okay, but there was a time when it was pretty easy to get decorative slabs and figured wood. So I did a lot of slab work in the beginning. Um, beyond those two uh, room and for art deco veneering is definitely an inspiration. He's been an inspiration for a long time and probably the reason that I do art deco work. And that is in the same way that pushes the precision because his veneer work was extremely precise and his inlay work was extremely precise. So that pushed the desire to be more precise and technical in my work as well. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Um, Do you have any advice for anyone who is looking to start, uh, like either looking for a mentor or looking for... I guess more of a concrete role model than just someone whose work you admire. In terms of a mentor, you mean somebody that you could go to their shop and learn from almost like an apprenticeship or just somebody you could talk to. Cause even like Paul Church and I, we only spoke in person a couple of times when I would go up to a shop in Santa Barbara. Most of our conversations were through email. Sure. Really? The, the, the mentoring type conversations were through email. Yeah. If you're thinking in terms of like an apprenticeship where you could go and, sort of learn a set of skills from somebody that's more difficult and pretty rare nowadays, right? at least in America. Probably the the former though, because I think to your point, I mean, if you are fortunate enough to have somebody locally, great. But for most of us, it probably, probably isn't uh, realistic. Um, so, you know, even, even just from, from conversation um, more so than just following somebody on Instagram or YouTube and watching their videos or whatever like um what was that what were those conversations like through email i can't imagine learning woodworking techniques from email but granted i grew up with you probably wasn't really technique oriented a lot of my conversations with paul were business oriented having to do with uh marketing and advertising and finishing not from a technical standpoint but he was one of the people that convinced me to start outsourcing my finishing Okay. So all my work now and for almost 10 years now goes to a professional finisher. I don't do any of my own finishing anymore. I did for a long time, but he was the one that convinced me to get that out of the shop and get the chemicals out of the shop. And that was a conversation through email and just through discussing things with him. Um, a lot of the email conversations were questions about client jobs coming up, how to price things, stuff like that. It, it helped that I had already taken a class with him and spent money to take a class with him. Um, so he's would be more inclined to answer my questions because I've already paid him money, obviously. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, th- you know, there's a relationship that comes with spending a week in somebody's shop because I yeah. took a class in his shop. So I spent a week in his shop working next to him with a couple of other students. So there's, there's a relationship there. If you're trying to develop that from scratch without necessarily taking a class with somebody, certainly email is the easiest way to get in touch with most people. You could do it through Instagram, through direct messaging, but most of the people that do woodworking professionally or most crafts professionally are, uh, are somewhat available to 
answer emails and talk to people. Some are much more available than others. Um, it kind of depends on, I don't know that you could make that into a mentoring type situation though. If you're contacting somebody cold that you've never talked to before, right? Somehow you have to develop that relationship <laughs> in a way that will make them want to continue answering your emails, <laughs> even though it, it obviously doesn't pay and they're not necessarily getting a lot out of it other than sharing information with somebody. Sure. I think you bring up a good point there, which is, and, and you know, it's you invested in him first, yeah. Which is, you said, hey, I value your skills enough to invest in both my time and financially in you teaching me something um, ver- before you asked for more, you know, versus like you just said, just randomly out of the blues, like, hey, you don't know me, but I'd love to, I'd love f- for you to give me a lot of your time. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, and I get, I get those emails pretty regularly probably from the writing for fine woodworking i've gotten more visibility than i would have otherwise because Mm -hmm. of that so i get those emails can i come to shop and hang out for a couple hours and we can talk woodworking and i have a pretty clear response to that and it's usually no um because it's a business and i'm trying to make money and i do woodworking all day long i don't really want to chat about it with anybody unless there's a reason to yeah um certainly not people that i don't know Um, so so thank you thank you for being here Craig Uh, (laughs) I totally understand that though (laughs) yes no I'm not I'm not trying to be antisocial in that sense but after you get enough of those it you know it it starts to take a significant amount of time out of your work day Mm -hmm. and they come in often enough that it becomes a distraction Um, well and what you're talking about though is they're not saying hey I would like to come to your shop and help you with like I'll sweep your floors or I'll organize your, you know, your lumber rack or something like that. It's, I want you give me your time first. That's their first well, ask, right? Yeah. Those, those come in as well. Those are typically different, but again, I'm, I'm a shop of one doing what I would consider fairly high end work. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of room in my shop for someone to come in and yeah sweep the floors or, help with a project and things like that. I, I don't have employees for a reason. It's because I don't want employees. I want to have complete control over the work. Mm-hmm, sure. So it, it would be difficult for me to bring somebody into the shop other than to just have them sit there and watch what I'm doing, which I have done in the past. It is oddly uncomfortable for a little while <laughs> until you kind of get to know the person. Right. Uh, but, but it is something I've done in the past when people are, they either ask the right way or they're maybe more insistent than others. Um, but yeah, like what you were pointing out originally, I, I invested in Paul to take a class from him. And I did the same thing with Patrick here in town. And since Patrick's in town, I go by his shop maybe once every six months to buy high glue for a certain project. And I usually spend a couple hours there and we talk about projects that he's working on and projects I'm working on, even though we have a a real distinct parting of the ways when it comes to how I work and how he works. Mm -hmm. He's not a huge fan of how I work. I like (laughs) how he works, but he's not a huge fan of commercial veneer. He really doesn't like uh, polyurethane glues and a lot of the things that I do, but that's how I make a living. So we've we've come to terms with our differences in that sense, I guess. (laughs) Respectfully disagree. I go over there, which is nice. You know, he doesn't kick me out. He says still sells me glue when I need glue and things like that. (laughs) But that's another one. You know, I invested in a a week long 
class on marketry with him. And then I paid to work in his shop on one of my own projects for a couple of weeks after that. So I rented a Chevrolet and space in his shop, not working with him helping necessarily, but just with him allowing me to work in his shop and do the marketry cutting there. He has a, you know, a zero sort of zero power tool shop. So basically you're just renting a Chevrolet marketry donkey so you can cut marketry. At that time I didn't have a scroll saw, didn't have any of the tools to do marketry. So I was able to use his shop for that. That's awesome. And so you started on a, a, what is it? Foot powered one then? (laughs) Or was it an actual? In Paul's shop, it's a scroll saw. He has about eight different scroll saws. So it's all scroll saw work. And I took the class with Paul first. And then right after that, I took the class with Patrick, which was on the foot-powered. It's not actually foot-powered. It's a, it's a hand-powered. The foot is the clamp on the Chevrolet. Oh, okay. So you use your foot to clamp the work in between two jaws that you then use a handsaw to cut. Ah. Um, but it's all, oh, it's boy. all on a track. The handsaw is on a track. But all of his saws are Chevrolets. He's, he studied at Echo Bull and... Yeah. France, and these are the stars that they used at Echo Boule, and he's got the American School for French Marketry, and it was basically because of his time in Echo Boule that he developed the school here mm-hmm. to teach basically the same thing. But wow. it is a it's a hand powered saw. Yes, it's old school. Wow. No no power tools really. The lights are the closest thing to a power tool. He's got right <laughs> That's awesome. No windows and candles. <laughs> a lot of windows, no candles, but yeah, probably not a good thing to have in a wood shop. No. <laughs> so, uh, how how would you recommend then for those of us who? Uh, I mean, we we always think about wanting mentors or or wanting to learn more, and I think there can be a tendency to sell ourselves short on how much we already know, because while we have, you know, especially myself, um, <laughs> while while we have a long ways to go. We do, if we sit back and look at it, we do know more than people who have never woodworked before or, or people who may want to get into the hobby and don't really know how to start. Do you have any ideas or suggestions for how we can share the craft with other people and how we can get other people interested and maybe be, um, you know, even sort of a low-level mentor to them in the beginning? Beyond things like what you're doing now with the podcast? Well, sure, podcast, yeah. in my mind, is is doing that job in a way because you discuss technique and you discuss projects and you discuss the whys of what the whys of your reasoning for doing woodworking and the virtue details on it. Um, Sharing it beyond that for me personally, places like Instagram are a good place to not only share your own work and the trials and tribulations you're going through, but to see the work of other people and what they're going through. Mm -hmm. And there's a variety of people on there, obviously, that do a whole variety of work in a ver- you know a whole range of skill sets from the, the raw beginner to very very advanced work. Um, you know, if it's still related to being a mentor, I'm not a hundred percent sure. It's not something I've put, unfortunately, a lot of time into because most of my time goes into just paying the bills. Right. There's not a lot of time left over. That's why I don't teach classes. Uh, the closest thing I do for mentoring is writing, uh, writing articles for the magazines, that kind of thing. And that, that in a way is mentoring, but it's very nonspecific. It's not towards one particular person. It's for anybody that wants to read mm-hmm. it. But that, that's how I share the knowledge with anybody that's willing or interested in reading it, um, is by doing writing and kind of trying to push the, 
skill set a little bit farther of anybody that's reading it. That's why a lot of my articles have been, except for the most recent ones, have been different things that aren't typically featured in the magazines, the exotic materials for inlay and curved veneering, stuff like that. Okay. Um, it, it's a way of sharing the knowledge without actually having people come to the shop and teaching a class, mm-hmm. which, you know, that would be a, that would be a more direct way of mentoring people, but it's for a much smaller audience where the magazine articles goes to a gigantic audience. Yeah, it does. But it's, but it's not really direct mentoring. I don't want mm-hmm. all of those people calling me. Well, and you can do it on your own time, uh, you know, at your own pace and then, you know, sort of give it, as a, as a whole package to someone to sort of absorb on their own too. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough way to learn though. Uh, in reality, it's like the marquetry with studying with Paul and Patrick, it would have taken me so much longer to learn marquetry and get good at it. Had I not taken those classes and they were only week long classes. I mean, that, that may be the best way to learn something is to just go out and take a class, Mm -hmm. take a week long class, take a weekend class. I mean, a weekend dovetail class where you build a dovetail box, you you learn so much more than you'll have learned in your shop by studying with somebody that's done it thousands of times. You know, you learn all the tips and tricks for cutting dovetails in a weekend where you're still trying to figure it out months and months later in your own shop. And, and you still may not figure it out. You'll you'll end up cutting dovetails, but you won't necessarily cut them quickly and cleanly and precisely without somebody that really knows how to do it showing you the way. Mm-hmm. It, it'll just save you a lot of trial and error. Um, I mean, that would that would be the easiest way to up a person's skill set. That doesn't really answer your mentoring question, obviously. Um, <laughs> it's sort of a different topic. Sure. No, but... that's... Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking more in, in terms of, uh, you know, for our listeners' sake, you know, they're gung-ho about woodworking. How do they just sort of pass on that love to other people, whether it's in, you know, sort of traditional mentoring or, or not? So I think I think what you said is valuable. <laughs> for somebody, maybe, hopefully. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know how you'd pass it on. I mean, I my, my kids aren't necessarily interested in spending much time in the shop, so I'm not doing very well at passing that on to them. <laughs> maybe they will be one day, but they're really not now. They see it as work, and that's not very entertaining to 10- and 13-year-olds. So I, I don't know. Beyond, you know, if you wanted to expand your own personal mentoring relationship, I still think what you guys are doing with the podcast is accomplishing quite a bit more than you could do by just going to a local club or a meeting. But that's another way to do it is to join your local woodworking club and that's true too. interact with interact with people that have similar interests. And, you know, our local club, San Diego Fine Woodworking Association, does a, a big show here in town and they have a chair workshop in the back and they they're not necessarily mentoring, but they're building chairs for kids and they're showing it off to the public as they come in so we have opportunities to volunteer to go in and build chairs and talk about it with the public and that's maybe one way of pushing the knowledge a little bit farther and seeing if there are people that are interested in it that didn't realize they were wow yeah i mean what all the all the different things that you're talking about both as far as recommendations as well as just your own personal experience i mean the the common theme there is is actual relationships like where you, where you're in where both parties are investing in the relationship and that can be in person it can be over email or phone calls but a a mutual investment um in the relationship i think is obviously critical and to your point when you're able to do that it allows you to accelerate the learning process um which you know is 
it's just a good, it's just, it's smart. It's a good use of your time. It's a better use of your time than trying to just figure everything out on your own. Um, you know, if you've got all the time to do that, great. But obviously it sounds like you've been able to accelerate the learning curve for yourself by investing in weekend or week-long classes. And sure, it's a financial investment, but at the same time, when you're running a business, you know, just because like your time is not free either. Um, right. And, you know, at some point, a, a monetary investment in is probably more well spent than new power tools. Um, oh, because yeah, if you don't definitely. know how to use them, then they're no waste anyways. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I could have bought a scroll saw and tried to teach myself how to do marketry by reading books. And there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with learning that way, but it is the slower way of doing it. Mm -hmm. If you can go to somebody who's recognized as kind of a master in what they're doing and have them sit next to you and show you what to do, your learning curve is going to be so much larger and faster than if you try and do it yourself in your shop. Um, and that can be for anything, you know, any, any skill that you want to learn. If you can find somebody like the Mary May with finding the master woodcarver down the street, she just got lucky that there happened to be a master carver in the same town as her. <laughs> if he was 200 miles away, she might be doing something different right now. Right. Um, and, and that same thing would apply to whatever you wanted to do, cut dovetails, do veneering, carving, anything like that. If you can find somebody that you can take a class with, whether they're in your town or whether you have to travel to do it, it it's certainly worthwhile financially because the learning curve is just so fast compared to trying to do it on your own. And you're going to waste so much time sitting in your shop getting frustrated where somebody sitting next to you that's done it before could say, oh, no, just turn it like this. And all of a sudden, you know, light bulb goes on and you just saved yourself hours of frustration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yep. that's true, because especially I think a lot of, you know, as a musician, I, I know that if you're not practicing in good form, you're driving home poor skills, you know, and right. that scares the daylights out of me in terms of woodworking, because I don't have a lot of hands on practice. When you study music, you study in the same room as someone, you know, for the most part, um, but there's a lot, I mean, the woodworking community is amazing, and I'm very grateful for everyone who puts all their stuff out there, but, um, you know, there's just this little nagging voice in the back of my head that's saying, you know, it looks like you're doing this right, but are you really doing this right? And if not, are you just reinforcing the wrong technique? So um, I can't imagine how amazing it would be to be in the same room as someone to just, you know, give you little tips like that. Like, oh, hold the saw differently. You know, um, oh, when you apply the glue, make sure to do it this way. Otherwise, it'll buckle or whatever. You know, like just these yeah. little tidbits that it's like, oh, if you know that from the start, then all of your future practice is just going to be more fruitful. Yeah, from that point on, you've become skilled in that whatever technique it is you're trying to learn. Mm -hmm. you, you've jumped ahead of anybody that's in their shop at home, especially if, like in Paul's class, it was five days, eight-hour days. I think we ended up spending – he left his shop. He was extremely nice. He let us stay in his shop late and come in early in the morning. So I was there 12 or 14 hours a day for the five days. So I crammed as much time as I possibly could into that. But it wasn't just taking a class. It was also being in – a professional shop and seeing how they did things, how they worked, how they organized projects, how the things flowed through their shop. That was extremely valuable 
because it's not something you have any experience with if you're doing it by yourself in your garage. You have no idea how a professional runs things in their own shop or somebody that's been doing it for 20 or 30 years. They have methods of doing things that can make things so much more efficient for you and more productive and more profitable. But you don't see that if you're looking at a picture or reading a magazine article. You really have your shop to do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, Craig, I want to thank you again for, for coming out uh, and, and talking with us. Um, I, I think you've certainly given us a lot to think about and uh, inspiration to just go out and do it. So um, hopefully our listeners will take that to heart. So uh, we want to wish you all the best, and we will see all of our listeners again for episode 10 coming up here in about a week. And as always, stay virtuous. <laughs>